Okay, if you have a copy of the Bible, whether it's a hard copy on your phone, your tablet, whatever it may be, Luke chapter 2 is where we will find ourselves this morning. So turn over to Luke chapter 2 and we'll get started there in just a moment. Uh, So I grew up in the churches of Christ. I often say the church of Christ is my tribe or I'm a part of the tribes of the church of Christ. But I realize that not all churches of Christ are the same. Um, I grew up in a subset of the Church of Christ where we didn't celebrate Christmas. Or we did celebrate Christmas, but we didn't focus on the birth story of Jesus. We didn't focus on the incarnation. Uh, We knew about Christmas trees, Christmas lights, and Santa Claus, and things like that. Uh, But I didn't really know what Christmas meant. In fact, the word Christmas itself, uh, I used to think, you know, Santa lives at the North Pole. That's the city he lives in. So Christmas must be the county, or something like that. I wasn't sure what Christmas meant. It wasn't until later in life that I put together Christ, Christmas. Oh, that makes sense. That's why people are always saying Jesus is the reason for the season. One of the reasons why I was told growing up we don't focus on the birth of Jesus during this time of year is because we don't know if this is when he was actually born. You know, Maybe it was September or another time in the year, so we just didn't focus on the story. I started working for a church about a decade ago. One of the elders stood up to do announcements around Christmas time, and he made a comment that I've, no, that I've not forgotten, but he said, you know, I've had people throw birthday parties for me on days that weren't my actual birthday, and I appreciated them just as much. And I started thinking about it, and we started studying Luke chapters 1 and 2, Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And that journey helped me to embrace this time of year because understanding the incarnation, understanding Jesus becoming human helps me appreciate the cross so much more. There's no denying the fact that this time of year and then around Easter, people are open to God more than they usually are. We might have people from the community or people from town or wherever they may be, and maybe because they're seeing things on TV or they're seeing nativity scenes around town, they're starting to think, and maybe God's Spirit is working on them. So I embrace this time of year as an opportunity to share who Jesus is. So this month, the month of December, if you haven't been with us, we have gone through Luke 1 and 2, and we've looked at different songs. We started with Zechariah from Luke chapter 1. Zechariah becomes the dad of John the Baptist. And as a result of John being born, Zechariah sings a song. We call it the Benedictus. The next week we looked at Mary's song. Mary's song is called the Magnificat. It's what we started with this morning, or one of the songs we started with. And Mary sees everything that's taking place as a great reversal. And then last Sunday morning we looked at The second part of Luke chapter 2, which is Simeon's song. So you see a theme. There's different people, different players in this story that God uses, and everybody seems to have a song. They respond with praise. And this morning, we're going to look at the angel's song, which is a little bit weird for us, isn't it? You can listen to one of your favorite songs, you can listen to the radio, or get on your phone and listen to music, and you can always put a human artist behind the song. But to have a title of a sermon where it's called The Angel's Song, that's very uncommon, because we don't know of any other songs that were written and performed by a group of heavenly hosts. 
until we get to Luke chapter 2, what we're going to study this morning. It's just not common for us. We are familiar with politicians. If I were to say names like Trump or Clinton or Obama or whatever other name you may think of, you have different feelings, whether it's a feeling of excitement or joy or anger when you hear some of these names, but you're familiar with those names because we're familiar with politicians. So Luke doesn't just start with the angels' songs in Luke chapter 2. He starts with politics, and then he moves to the angels' songs. So let's start in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from the emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Some of your translations say that there's a census taking place. People have to go to their hometowns. Why? So they can be taxed. We've got to know who you are and where you're from so we can charge you, so we can tax you. So everybody's going to their hometowns to be registered. And what Luke tells us is that Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, was ruling at that time. Caesar Augustus. Why does Luke include this? Is it because Luke is a historian? Seems like it, because in verse 2 he talks about the governor of Syria, who I'll call Q, because it's hard to pronounce his name. But I don't think Luke is trying to be a historian here. I think what he's showing us is he's saying a name they would have been familiar with, just like me saying Trump, Obama, or Clinton. You know what those names are. They know who Caesar Augustus is. He lives in Rome. He's the emperor. He is the man. And he mentions his name, but it's almost like he's showing us that over here in the margins, that's where God is actually working. In Luke 3, and Luke 7, and Luke 13, he keeps going back to these politicians, whether it's Herod or Herod's sons or Caesar himself, and he gives us their names, and then he gives us over here where God is actually working. So what do we know about Caesar Augustus? He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar took Rome and made it a great republic. Caesar Augustus, when he came on the throne... He made it a great empire. He claimed that his dead adoptive father was divine. So he claimed that he was the son of God. Caesar Augustus claimed that he was savior. In fact, people would call him savior. They would call him king of kings and lord of lords. Does that sound familiar? This is the man who sits on a throne in Rome and people refer to him as a god. And increasingly people started to worship him as a God. Meanwhile, a baby is born in a town that he'll never travel to, a town that he's never heard of, and people will start to call that baby King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Savior. You see, Caesar Augustus represents the kingdoms of this earth. And when Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2, we see a confrontation begins between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. This is the beginning of this confrontation, and that confrontation is still taking place today, especially as we live within our own little kingdoms, and we only let a little bit of God in. The kingdom of God is bursting through Jesus here in Luke chapter 2. So Joseph takes Mary, you know this story, I'm sure, he takes Mary with him to Bethlehem because that's where his family line comes from, so he goes for the census. Mary, who is pregnant, but they're not married yet, 
travels with him, and we know how she became pregnant from Luke chapter 1, from the Holy Spirit. An unbelievable story, hard for us to even believe, but especially for, for those who would have been involved in this story. And while they're in Bethlehem, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 6, Luke tells us, he writes that while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. So she's on the road, she's on the go, and it's time. It's time for the delivery. If you've ever given birth, you might have had a birth plan. Whatever birth plans Mary had with her midwife, you can throw those out the window because she's going to give birth while she's on the road. Okay, the time comes and then the baby is born. He tells us in verse 7, She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in a band of cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's no room for them. Which makes me think, this is God incarnate himself coming to earth, and there wasn't room for him, there wasn't a place for him. Which, without trying to sound too cheesy, that pretty much describes a lot of my life. Like I, I make room for God in small ways, but I don't always let God all the way in. So you could use that verse to describe myself and maybe you at times. And here comes God... Yet we don't make place for him. We don't make room for him. But regardless, this baby we know is Jesus is born. And now we divide time. We divide all of human history based on this birth. We're maybe off a few years, but we say this is the year 2017 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. All of time is divided based on what takes place right here. There was a young girl uh, with her family in Kansas several years ago, and they survived a tornado, a frightening thing. They were fine, but their house was torn up, had to get the house remodeled and things like that. But they were scarred, so every time a tornado would come through or every time a thunderstorm would come through, they were just terrified. And one night, the parents put the kids to bed, And they could hear their daughter upstairs crying. It was a thunderstorm. They could feel the house rumbling. So the dad went upstairs to check on the daughter, and he was trying to get her to calm down and go back to sleep. And he said, it's okay. We're not under tornado watch, tornado warning. It's just a thunderstorm. And she said, yeah, dad, that's easy for you to say, but you don't know what it's like to be little. You don't know what it's like to see it from my perspective. As I read that story, I thought, I thought about Luke chapter 2, and I thought, God knows what it's like. Through the incarnation, God knows what it's like to be human. <coughs> he knows what it's like to be one of us. In Hebrews chapter 2, <coughs> verse 14, verse 17, <coughs> the Hebrew writer tells us, That Jesus became like us. He took on flesh and blood and became like us in every way. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul records the Christ hymn. That's what we call it. And he tells us that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. God knows what it's like to be human, and he becomes human, and he submits himself to the mercy of Mary and Joseph to take care of him. 
And then, that's not the end of the story. Luke doesn't stop there at just this birth. We, he introduces these shepherds. <coughs> in verse 8, it says, In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. This continues the theme of common people. We've seen throughout Luke 1 and 2 how God is working. And he's using people that are just everyday common people who are faithful like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph. We looked last week at Simeon and Anna. And now we see these shepherds. That God is using people that are not on the big stage, not people in Rome. But he's using ordinary people. We're going to watch a video. I want you to just check this out. We're going to dim the lights and watch this video. It'll show you seven different perspectives of these different characters that God uses and how they view this story. And then we'll continue in Luke chapter 2. For me, it was living proof that God keeps his promises. I had waited a lifetime for the hope of the world to arrive. And just when it seemed that the prophecy would die along with me, I heard the cry of salvation coming from, from an obscure little town. The only thing more powerful than expectant hope is fulfilled hope. It gave me permission to die in peace, but more importantly, it gave people everywhere the possibility to live with peace. He was a constant reminder that God does not make mistakes. I didn't believe that at first. Everything started out so wrong. People told me I was a fool, blind to the truth, too trusting for my own good, but deep down in my soul, I knew something special was happening. Something bigger than my fears. Something better than my plans. Someone greater than my doubts. He was a threat to my throne. My kingdom had been built by my own hands. And now there was a claim that a child had been born who would be known as the King of Kings? Not if I had anything to say about it. So I went after him. There was no way I would bend my knee to another, a child at that. If he wanted my throne, he would have to do what I did. He would have to take it. He served as the pathway to wisdom and knowledge. Some have called us wise men. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The king used us like puppets to carry out his devious plans. Yet in the midst of our blindness, God gave us a beacon of light, a heavenly compass that pointed us towards an incomparable gift containing the depths of God's riches. To think that we brought him gifts seems so laughable now. He was the gift to us. He was the reassurance that God could still use anyone. As an innkeeper, I 
had welcomed many weary travelers before, but none as tired as that young couple. With no room to offer, I was ready to send them on their way when I noticed the woman was close to giving birth. I offered them the only place I had, a manger. It seemed like such a trivial act at the time, but I soon realized that I had played a part in something much bigger than myself. God had chosen me to. <clears throat> the answer to every question I'd ever asked. Why me? How could this happen, you know? What will people think? My journey began with confusion and, and fear, but slowly, with each passing day, I, I came to see the beauty and the blessing of God's presence as my son grew inside of me. It was a strange mixture of human limits and divine love, culminating in that one moment when I saw his face for the first time, I realized God was with us. It was the good news we never knew existed. Every day was the same day for us. When you guard sheep for a living, any distraction is welcome. But that night was more than we could have ever hoped for. The silence gave way to the sacred. The simple gave way to the supernatural. The bleeding of sheep gave way to the crying of a child. For a world in need of joy. For the earth in search of peace. <coughs> it was such good news that we could not help but spread the word. So maybe you're able to figure out from the video the different characters that are in the video and who they are. You know, it starts with Simeon, who we looked at last week, and then Joseph, and then even through the perspective of Herod and Mary and the innkeeper, the Magi, and then it ends with these shepherds. And the shepherds are introduced into the scene, and we get the story through their perspective, through their story, through their lens. They're out in the fields, they're keeping watch over their sheep by night, because they're good shepherds, that's what they're doing, they're protecting their sheep from prey, and then all of a sudden, these angels appear to them, and this heavenly light shines around them, and the angels appear to them, and their first response is they're terrified, because that's how you respond when you're in the presence of angels, and the angels have to tell them, don't be afraid, we're going to bring you good news. In fact, this is going to be good news and great joy for all people. And then in verse 11, we're told that this baby that's born is going to be, have three titles. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. <clears throat> Savior, Christ, and Lord. That's what the angels are telling these shepherds. What does that sound like? That sounds like Caesar Augustus. The Roman Emperor. People referred to him as Savior. People referred to him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And yet here are these angels who come from heaven, who have an announcement 
who have a word for these shepherds, and they say it's not Caesar Augustus, it's this baby that's born in Bethlehem. That's Savior, Christ, and Lord. And while the angels are communicating these things to the shepherds, they tell them in verse 12 to go there, and there's going to be a sign for you. You'll find the child wrapped in a band of cloth and lying in a manger. And then out of nowhere, like a flash mob, there's this heavenly host So it seems like it's angels, but maybe it's other characters, heavenly beings that we don't fully understand. So it's not just the angels' song, but in verse 13, there's a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. That's the song. That's the common response. That's what all these characters do, is they respond with a song. And here's their song. Glory to God in the highest, And then they mention peace, peace on earth. This word peace, the background word for peace is the word shalom. Uh, That's a Hebrew word. And it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. Shalom means being at one with God. So when they're singing peace on earth, we may think, well, here we are 2,000 years later and the earth doesn't seem real peaceful. There's still wars, there's still violence and hatred and racism and horrible things that go on when you look in the news, so it doesn't seem real peaceful. So what was this? Was this just some Christmas fantasy, hoping that maybe there would be peace on earth someday? When the angels are singing about peace on earth, it's a peace treaty between God and man. Yeah, this world that we live in may never be completely peaceful and full uh, and absent of conflict or violence. But we have peace with God. We have the opportunity to be one with God because of Jesus. That's the peace treaty between God and man. So that's the praise that they sing. Glory to God and the highest heaven, peace on earth. And as a part of this sermon, we're going to wrap up chapter 2 in just a moment, but Tony's going to lead us in this song so we can join the angels and singing these words this morning. Tony, if you would, lead the song for us.
Thanks, Tony. I know it's not common to lead a song in the middle of the sermon, um, so if you thought we were done, just keep in mind I'm still within my 30-minute time limit, all right? So give me just a few more minutes to finish up Luke chapter 2. So the angels, the heavenly hosts, are praising God. The shepherds are in the field, and then in verse 15, they said, let us go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. And then verse 16, they went with haste. They hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. So they, they hurry up and go. They leave their sheep behind because they want to go see what's taking place. And I love the contrast between the splendor of that announcement of these angels talking to them in the middle of nowhere, and the heavenly host singing this song, they hurry off, and then they go find a manger, probably cattle, sheep, goats, poop on the floor, and a baby crying. That's what they find. So you see the difference between the, that splendorous announcement and then this common situation of this baby. Because that's not Caesar Augustus. If you want to find Caesar Augustus, you go to a palace in Rome, not a manger in Bethlehem. But we, you know, we've looked at these different perspectives, and you can imagine Mary and Joseph, you can imagine the dream that they had, the, the weird situation that they were in, what people might have been saying about them, and maybe some of the discouragement that they were facing. So when the shepherds show up out of nowhere, for them, that's extra confirmation. The shepherds were sent by God, I think, to help confirm to Mary and Joseph that they're on the right path. So the angels leave, and they see this, and, and they go and they just start telling everybody about what they've seen. And then in verse 19, we're told that, again, that Mary ponders these things. She treasures them up and ponders them in her heart. And then in verse 20, we see that the shepherds go away glorifying and praising God. So that kind of wraps up right there. The appropriate response when something like this happens is to praise God. And that's still an appropriate response to us today. I know Christmas time for some of you, it may be a tough time. It may be a sad time because you remember loved ones. For some of you, this time of year is an exciting time. But regardless of the situation, through joy and through pain, we see the response is to have a song in your heart. Not just a song to sing when we get together on a Sunday morning, but a song to sing throughout the week. Because an appropriate response is praise. And it seems like that section would end right there in verse 20, but there's also verse 21. Which just seems like just a descriptive verse that's just kind of thrown in there to fill in some details. But in verse 21, it says, After eight days had passed, it came time to circumcise the child. Galatians 4.4, 4, Jesus was born under the law. So he's circumcised. They give him the name Jesus because that's what the angel told Mary to name the boy. So he's given the name Jesus, the name that changes everything. The name that changes the world. The name of Jesus. So I keep mentioning Caesar and I keep mentioning palace, a palace in Rome. If you've ever thought about it, and I know I'm not God and you're not God, but if you were God and you chose this plan, are these the circumstances that you would be born into? I would probably lean more towards luxury. 
somewhere in Rome, like a palace, like an emperor, and plus, everybody would know if that was the case. So why so subtle? Why so kind of in the backgrounds over here in Bethlehem, where hardly anyone knows about, to Mary and Joseph, no one knows them. Why this way? The people that needed Jesus the most, they don't have access to palaces. Jesus being born in Bethlehem, the way that he was born, the circumstances, shows us that we can have access to God. That God is accessible. And he becomes one of us, not just sort of like us, but he becomes like us in every way in order to reach us. You already see this on the PowerPoint. But you see in this section in Luke chapter 1, that it begins with... Caesar, it begins with Augustus, but in verse 21, it ends with Jesus. If you ever studied the book of Revelation, there's the theme right there. The world knew about Caesar, the world knew about the Roman emperor and the dominance of Rome, but it ends with Jesus. And that's still the same case for us today. This story points us to Jesus. Jesus is willing to be the Savior that we need not the Savior that we think we want. If we could choose, we would probably choose someone like Caesar Augustus. Dominance and power and get whatever you want whenever you want it. That's what we think we want, but that's not what we need. And Jesus was willing to be the Savior that we need, and at times it made him look crazy. This story makes God look crazy in some ways. Why would you... Come into the world this way. But being born under these humble circumstances, about 33 years later, leads this baby to a cross, which leads him to a tomb, which leads him to a resurrection, which leads us to him and leads us to heaven. That's what the story's all about. Uh, this morning, we're going to sing some more songs, and we just want you to know that this is an opportunity for you. If you need to come up front, I'll be up here to receive you. We have shepherds that will be around the building. Take this opportunity this morning to pray with someone or respond if you need to. Let's stand back up and continue singing. Herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God has set us reconciled. Joyful all ye nations.